Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 to 17. This is the reading of God's word. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What of your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. Take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we are continuing our series in the names of God. And again, uh, all of the names we're looking at throughout this series, they're meant to kind of give us glimpses into who God is. Uh, they're meant to highlight specific attributes of God and what they mean for us today. Uh, if you remember in week one, we talked about God as Elohim the creator of the cosmos who uh, hovers over our darkness and brings beauty out of chaos. And then if you remember from last week, we looked at the name El Shaddai, God Almighty, this God who not only has the power to deliver us from whatever we're going through, but also the ability to nourish and sustain us while we wait for that deliverance to come, okay? Well, today uh, we're looking at the name Adonai, okay? It's a name that appears uh, some 400 times in the Old Testament. Um, in our Bibles, it's usually just translated Lord, uh, not to be confused with Lord, capital L-O-R-D, uh, which I mentioned is a diff different Hebrew word altogether. Um, when you see capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles, that's referring to the divine, sacred name of God, Yahweh, which was revealed to Moses at the burning bush, and I'll talk more about that today. But Adonai which is translated Lord, is the pluralized form of the word Adon. Okay, so again, we're seeing hints of God's plural nature woven into the very fabric of his name. And, and this word Adon is used to describe a master or an owner. Okay, which means that to call God Adonai, uh, you are basically acknowledging God as your master and your owner. Okay. Now, I don't want to speak for um, everyone here, uh, but I would say that most of us can get behind the idea of God as Elohim, right? As creator of the universe, it's pretty easy. Uh, most of us probably love the idea of God as El Shaddai, right? All-powerful, able to do the impossible, right? What's, what's there not to love about that? But to call God Adonai is something completely different. Because now you're actually allowing God to mess with your life. Okay, if God is your master, then that means you're not allowed to make a decision without consulting God first. Okay, and I'm not just talking about saying you're going to pray about it, which Christians love using that phrase, right? Everything, you know, we say, you know, let me pray about it a little bit. But in the end, we really want to do what we want to do, right? So uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actually letting God through his word 
tell us what to do. And people today, you know, we don't like the sound of that, right? We don't want to answer to someone else. We want to be free. You know, we, want, uh, we don't want someone else dictating how we live our lives and what we do with our bodies, our money, our time. I mean, like, isn't that the thing we've been fighting against for hundreds of years, right? There's just something about this idea of being owned or possessed that just feels dirty and offensive and, and kind of oppressive, right? And, and it makes sense that we feel this way, one, because human beings make horrible masters. You know, we're, we're jacked up. Um, but also because we're living in what the philosopher Charles Taylor refers to as a culture of authenticity. Okay, let me explain that a little bit. But um, basically, you know, this is a huge shift from uh, what used to be a culture of authority. And, and I could literally spend about seven hours telling you how we got to this place. If you are a philosophy or a history nerd and, and you want to know more about this, I'm always happy to chat. Um, but to put it simply, for most of human history, people lived by what external authority structures like God, like the Bible, like tradition told them to do. Okay? Some of those structures were good. Some were obviously very bad. But the bottom line is that everyone received their cues from outside of themselves. Well, through a whole slew of cultural and historical factors, things began to change. And soon this culture of authority became a culture of authenticity. And in a culture of authenticity, it's seen as primitive to live by what an external authority tells you to do, right? We now live in a culture where our internal self gets to choose what we want to do, okay? So we've gone from having someone else, someone outside of ourselves tell us what to do, to now living according to what our internal self wants to do. And, and you may be thinking like, well, I mean, that's obvious, right? Of course, isn't that how we should live? Why would you let someone else tell you what's right and what's wrong? That's oppressive, right? But I'm gonna ask us, I think we have to humble ourselves and realize that the very reason we think this is that this is the cultural air we're breathing right now. Right? You may think it's so obvious that a person should just follow their heart and just be true to themselves and do what they feel is right, but you have to understand that for most of human history, people did not think this way. Right? In fact, in, for most of human history, people didn't even believe that following your heart was the pathway to a flourishing life. They thought that following your heart was actually the pathway to destruction. Okay, So even as we talk about this today, I'm going to kind of ask you to play devil's advocate on yourself, to question your own biases, to ask whether or not just maybe is it possible that what you believe is not the result of your being just so much smarter or more enlightened than everyone else, but whether you've unknowingly bought into a cultural narrative that tells us that the good life equals freedom to do whatever we want. Right? And we need to start wrestling with this because to call God Adonai is to resist everything we've been taught since the day we were born. It's to put our whole selves under God's authority and his lordship. Okay, so think about this. You can believe that God is Elohim and God is El Shaddai and still not be a Christian. There are a lot of people in the world right now who believe in an all-powerful creator. 
Okay? Even the demons believe this in the Bible. The question is, is God Adonai? Right? Is God your Lord? Is God your master? At the end of the day, is it your call or is it God's call? And, and I would argue that the biggest problem right now in Western Christianity is that we have a whole bunch of people who say they believe in God and yet refuse to acknowledge God as Adonai. Right? People who treat God like a genie, who believe God exists to serve them, to help them achieve their dreams and further their own agendas, right? Which is why we get so angry when God doesn't give us what we want when we want it. When God doesn't follow our timeline and he doesn't cater to our needs. But you see, if God is Adonai, he isn't obligated to give us what we want because we're not in charge. He is. He's not living in our house. We're living in his house, right? Why do parents, you know, like, this is what parents say all the time. As long as you're living under my roof, it's my rules, right? I've been saying this to my kids, like, a lot more recently. Whatever I say goes because this is my house, right? Sometimes my kids try to get smart and say, isn't this God's house, right? Which makes me even more angry. But if we truly believe that God is the owner of our lives, then it's his rules, not our rules, right? And as we unpack our text today, I want you to be asking yourself that question. Who is God to you? Is he just Elohim or is he Adonai? Because how you answer that question will have enormous implications for your life, okay? Now, our passage uh, that we're looking at today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verses 10 to 17. Uh, I mentioned it's from the life of Moses, and I want to just give us a little bit more context. Moses was a guy, like many people in the Bible, uh, whose life didn't turn out the way he thought it would. Our lives rarely do, right? If you had told me when I was 18 years old that 20 years later I would be where I am right now doing what I'm doing, uh, I would not have believed you, okay? Well, Moses was a guy who was raised in a royal house. He was a gifted young leader. Uh, he had all the potential in the world, and then in one instant, everything changes, right? One day, uh, he's walking, and he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew, uh, one of his own people. He gets pissed, and, and out of his anger, he kills the Egyptian and then buries the body in the sand, okay? So the Bible has some crazy stories, right? Uh, well, the news spreads pretty quickly. Uh, Pharaoh hears about this. He's now looking to kill Moses. And so Moses has to run for his life. And he goes to a place called Midian, right? Where he basically spends uh, what would have been the, the best years of his life tending sheep for his father-in-law. Okay, so you go from being valedictorian of your class to being a complete nobody. Okay, this is the trajectory of Moses' life. It's pretty depressing, okay? But like last week um, in the story of Abraham, Moses' situation is ripe for an encounter with God. Because for some reason, God just tends to show up when people are at their absolute lowest. And, and, I, and I think that's important for us to know because this morning, you know, if you're worshiping with us here on the Zoom and you just feel like your life is imploding right now, or, or you just feel like nothing is going the way you drew it out, um, I don't want to make light of your situation. I don't want to dismiss what you're going through. Um, but I do want to say that I'm kind of excited for you, right? Because if the stories we read in the Bible are meant to tell us something about God, 
It's that God always tends to meet people in the moments of their greatest need. Always. And this is exactly what he does. In Exodus 3, Moses is just out tending sheep like he does every day, resigned to the fact that this is his life now. And then he looks up and he sees a burning bush, right? And as, as he approaches the bush, he hears the voice of God saying, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy, right? And it says Moses has to hide his face because he's so afraid to even look at God. Okay, and so you have to understand, right? For most of Moses' life, um, he's the one in charge, right? For most of Moses' life, he's been the one telling people what to do. But at the burning bush, he encounters the one who tells him what to do. He says, take off your sandals for the place you're standing is holy. And God begins to give him instructions. He says, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to bring my people out. And Moses is like, yeah, no, I don't think I can do that. Um, you know, been out of the game for a while. Uh, they don't even know who I am. And so he just starts throwing out excuse after excuse, right? We love uh, giving excuses when God calls us to do something, right? But God, there are so many better people for the job. You know, I can't be a leader. I don't know enough about the Bible, right? But God, it's too hard to wait till marriage. That's such an archaic idea. But God, it was her fault. Why do I have to reach out first, right? But, but, but. We do it all the time, okay? And, and my favorite part of the story of the burning bush is when Moses asks God, well, well, okay, when I go to Egypt, what do I say when they ask what your name is? And God says, I am who I am. I am who I am, right? Imagine, you know, going up to someone at church and being like, hey, what was your name again? And they're like, I am who I am, okay? That's weird, okay? I'd be like, I'd be like okay, that's weird. But what is God saying here? He's saying, I don't answer to anyone. Everybody else is given a name. By whom? Their master. He's saying, in case you're wondering who my master is, I am who I am. Nobody tells me what to do. And then he continues on giving Moses more instructions, which then brings us to chapter 4. And Moses is still throwing out excuses because he doesn't want to go. But something interesting happens in verse 10, which is where we started reading today. Uh, up to that point, God has only been referred to in this story as capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. But all of a sudden, in verse 10, we see a switch. Okay, and you don't see it in your Bibles, but in the Hebrew, you see a switch. Moses begins to call God Adonai. In verse 10, it says, But Moses said to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Oh, my Lord, oh, Adonai, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who gives speech to mortals, who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Um, is it not I, the Lord, right? And then Moses says, uh, you know, like Moses said, but, but oh, my Lord, he says it again, oh, Adonai. Please send someone else. What do we learn from this little interaction? First thing I want us to notice is this. It's clear here that Moses does not want to go where God is sending him. He's like, God, I can't talk good, so you got to send someone else, right? And the implication is this. Making God your Adonai 
means you will often have to do things you don't want to do. Making God your Adonai means you will often have to do things you don't want to do. If the God you follow somehow agrees with all your political views and your lifestyle choices and always takes your side in every argument, I'm going to venture to guess that God is probably not your Adonai. God is just a puppet that helps you justify what you already want to believe. If you've never read anything in the Bible or heard something preached that made you a little uncomfortable or disrupted your paradigm of life even just a little bit, I'm going to take a guess and say, God is probably not your Adonai. Because if God is truly our master, then we should expect to be uncomfortable. You know, I have a lot of friends in ministry who saw people leave their churches during the pandemic. And I was talking to one of my friends and he said, the week I talked about racism, a third of our church left. And I was like, why, why are you guys leaving? They're like, why are you talking about racism? Why are you bringing that stuff into the church? Right? Because at the end of the day, you realize people just want to hear what they want to hear. But if God is at an eye, we should expect to hear things we don't always want to hear. We should expect to be challenged to do things we don't always want to do. Okay? Now, it's interesting how God responds to Moses' ex excuses. Listen to what he says. He says, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I? God is saying, Why are you telling the owner what his possession can or cannot do? Right? Don't you think I know exactly what you're capable of? Like, it's like a car going up to the person who made the car saying, I don't think I can go that fast. And the person is like, no, you can go that fast. I made you, right? To make God Adonai is to assume God knows better than you do, right? To make God Adonai means you're saying, you're the owner, you're the master, you made me, so you know more what I'm capable of than I do myself right? I know God says, don't have sex outside of marriage. But you know what? It's not really hurting anyone. Seems okay to me. Not a big deal. Assume God knows better than you do. I know God says to forgive 77 times, but I mean, that's ridiculous, right? 77 times. I mean, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? 77 times. I mean, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to forgive. And what we're saying when we say things like that is that we know better than the one who made us. Now, the reason this is very difficult for all of us, myself included, is that a lot of times I don't, we don't believe God has our best interests in mind, right? We kind of have this idea that God is like, he's this sadistic buzzkill who just wants to take away all of our happiness, right? No. God is, is not trying to take away your happiness. God is trying to turn you into a certain kind of person. And he knows that you're not going to get there by getting everything you want. You know, uh, John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, he says that our culture wants us to believe that the good life is about getting what we want. God wants to teach us that the good life is about becoming the kind of people who truly want good things. Okay, let me say that again. 
Our culture right now is telling us that the good life is about getting what we want. God wants to teach us that the good life is about becoming the kind of people who want truly good things. And that may mean curbing some of your wants in order to cultivate others. This is what it means to make God your master. To die to ourselves and to trust that everything God asks us to do serves the purpose of turning us into the people he wants us to be. Okay? Now, if you don't identify as Christian or you're new to the faith and you're joining us today, welcome. You know, we're so happy that you're, you're here. Um, and you might be thinking, listening to this, like, I mean, you're hearing this language of like master owner possession. You're like, uh, I'm not sold. I'd rather be free. I am not going to let some distant being out there tell me what I can or cannot do. I'll take my chances on myself. But let me press you just a little bit and ask you, are you really free? Are you really free? Because God may not be your master, but something else is. And whatever that thing is, it is already dictating every decision you make in life. If money is your master, every decision you make, what jobs you take, what city you choose to live in, what friendships you choose to invest in, all will revolve around what will make you the most money. If romance is your master, you will throw all your values and all your self-dignity out the window for the sake of having a significant other. If politics is your master, you will, th you will abandon people you've been friends with your entire life because they didn't vote for your political candidate. That doesn't look like freedom to me. That looks like slavery. Okay? And the thing about all these other masters is that they could care less about your well-being. They will squeeze every last ounce of your energy, your time, and your resources, and they will leave you out to dry. God is the only master. God is the only owner who will take responsibility for what he owns. He is the only master who will provide for, protect, guide, and maximize those who are under his care. If you've ever owned a home, you know that ownership brings with it responsibility, right? Some days I miss renting because if you're renting and something goes wrong, it's not your problem. It's the landlord's problem. If you own the home, it's your problem. Bad owners will just leave things as is and let them get worse. Good owners will do something about it. Um, you know, my parents sold our childhood home last year and, and they were considering multiple offers from different people and um, they ended up selling the home to a young pastor and his wife, right? You know, the providence of God. And, and, and they met the couple and they said, you know, we could just tell they were going to be good owners, that they were going to love care for and maintain this home that meant so much to us well let me ask everyone here what kind of an owner would you entrust your life to what kind of an owner would you entrust your life to you know in exodus 4 the part that really jumps out to me is the last section from verses 14 to 17 so moses is throwing out excuses god is like trust me i made your mouth you have what it takes 
and Moses is still like, please, no, send someone else. Then it says God was angry with Moses, right? And I understand God. Like, who wouldn't be frustrated at this point? But then it says, even in his anger, God says, what about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently, so I'll send him with you. And then in verse 15, it says, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what to do. So Moses is resistant till the very end. So if I'm God, I'd be like, you know what? Forget it. I'm not your Adonai. You know, like, I don't, you know, come back when, when you're ready to call me Adonai. But that's not what God does. He says, okay, why don't I put you on a team? Why don't I get someone who can help you? Right? What kind of master does that? One who looks at Moses' fear and insecurity and, and rather than rebuke him and force him to just go alone, one who says, I'm going to take responsibility for you and I'm still going to give you what you need to do what I've called you to do. The patience and commitment of a God who doesn't give up on us even when we fail to submit to him. Isn't this the kind of owner you would want to entrust your life to? You know, I, I talk to so many people these days and a common theme, even in our prayer meetings, is that people are just tired. Some people are carrying responsibilities of motherhood, fatherhood, um, their workplaces, being a boss, being a staff member. I mean, they're just carrying so much on their own shoulders and they're entrusting their lives to themselves and this pandemic has exposed how weak we really are. And I just wanna ask everyone here, do you really think you can carry the weight of this life on your own shoulders? Do you really trust yourself to be the ultimate authority for morality, meaning, and purpose? Because I don't know about you, but I don't trust myself because my opinions change literally on a week-to-week -week basis, right? We say we don't want to take our cues from anyone but ourselves, but isn't it exhausting to try to be our own saviors? You know, we have an owner who looked upon his creation and saw that it was broken. And rather than leave us to deal with the consequences of our actions, which would have been in his prerogative to do, he took full responsibility for that which was his, even if it meant giving his own life so that you and I could be made right with God and with one another. What kind of a master does that? Only Jesus. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, there's a scene where Jesus turns to a crowd full of people who at the time were trying to save themselves through their good works, right? Just like we all try to save ourselves by being a super mom or a perfect son or a perfect daughter or a successful person. And Jesus looks upon the crowd with love and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, which is weird, right? Because he's saying, I will give you rest, but there's still a yoke and a burden you're gonna have to carry, meaning you're still gonna have to let me be your master. But he says, don't worry, you do this. I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
I suspect that many of us today are weary and burdened, partly because we've been serving masters who demand that we figure everything out on our own. And if this is you, I, I want to plead with you this morning, come to Jesus. Make him your Adonai. Give him ultimate claim over your mind, body, and soul, knowing that he is gentle and humble in heart and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he's a master who not only has our best interests in mind, but he's a master who carries us even when we can't do the things he's called us to do. This is who Jesus is. Okay, and so to close today, um, I want to give us a moment. Um, wherever you are, if you would just close your eyes, bow your heads. And I want us to ask ourselves, what's one thing in our lives that we need to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? What is one area that we need to die to ourselves, to our way, to our timetable? Is it a relationship? Is it your finances? Is it your sexuality? Is it your family? Is it your career? And maybe even as you think of that thing, you may feel like Moses, but, 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 I can't. It's too hard, God. Just not that thing, God. Don't take that one away. But in the quietness of our hearts in this moment, I want us to hear Jesus' voice saying, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you trust me with your life, I will give you rest. I died to give you rest. Let's just sit with that. I'd like to close um, with this prayer by Henry Nouwen, and I hope this prayer would, would resonate deep within our hearts this morning. O oh Adonai, I so much want to be in control. I want to be the master of my own destiny. Still, I know that you are saying, let me take you by the hand and lead you. Accept my love and trust that where I will bring you, the deepest desires of your heart will be fulfilled. Lord, open my hands to receive your gift of love. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.